This is the BioBusters, professors hanging out talking science, episode number 39, recorded on April 29th, 2021. All right, welcome back, folks. You're listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I am Delbert Abby Abdallah. I am here with Chris Fawner and Chris Keller. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Can't complain. I feel like I'm in the trenches today of science. <laughs> I just, not just I didn't do. Not didn't just f- figuratively, I literally. Feel what, like that's I'm, out of You didn't go for a coffee run. You're, you're really in the oh, trenches right now. And I could use some coffee. Not getting a break soon. Yeah, I could use coffee. It was, it was a busy day. It was a busy day. We talked about uh, optimism in medical school. That was a good session today, yes. I, I felt it was good. I, yeah. you know, I got some feedback, but, you know. I'm not soliciting for feedback. I was just. Yeah. But uh, for, for those of you listening, uh, we, we had a, a, a little faculty session today about how to increase positivity for both faculty and students. Uh, not that we're not, you know, positive as it is. Right. But pretty much to uh, increase well, more of it. COVID, COVID really made it tough. It is. Oh, yeah, it is. Sure, a lot you know? of people have COVID fatigue. Uh, mm-hmm. Zoom fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good thing. So that was a good discussion. I agree. So uh, we have an interesting birthday today. One of the famous Miller and Ure experiments. So we have Harold Ure. Take it away, Fauna. Yeah. So he was born on April 29th, 1893. And he died January 5th, 1981. So yeah, 87. Good for him. I mean, that's a, I guess nobody... Nobody wants to go, but that's a nice age to go at. He lived a full life. Now, it's very morbid. I don't know if I like doing these birthdays. I go down a morbid path. Uh, I, I mean, I'm somebody sure. else should. No, no. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was going to. We're going to get to somebody who is 45, and I'm going to start crying right. or something. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Harold was an American scientist who was awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1934 for his discovery of deuterium, which is the heavy form of hydrogen. Uh, He was also very active in the development of the atomic bomb, and he helped to contribute to the growing basis for the theory of what has now become widely accepted as the origin of the Earth, as well as the other planets. And in 1953, both Yuri and Stanley Miller simulated the effect of lightning in the prebiotic atmosphere of Earth with an electrical discharge in a mixture of hydrogen, methane, ammonia, and water. And due to this kind of effect of lightning and this electrical discharge with that mixture, uh, this effect was basically a rich mixture of aldehydes and carboxylic and amino acids. And these are molecules that are going to be found in proteins, nucleic acid bases, basically the building blocks of all life life. and matter, which again, that's just pretty cool that to think about it kind of going in reverse, these two scientists who are made up of these compounds did this experiment, basically backtracing kind of the origin of life. Uh, I'm, I'm in a very existential mood. We're, get, we're, going, we're getting a bit meta over here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't like going down this path. Uh, and uh, Yuri also calculated the temperature of ancient oceans 
from the amount of specific isotopes that are found in fossil shells. So he was even more meta and existential than I was. I mean, he was really interested in where did life come from, you know, ancient ocean, you know, investigations. Well, he, that was his work. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was. And uh, I love if, Yuri. If, uh, if, if, if you guys want to learn more about the Miller-Yuri experiment, as it happens to be actually, and I just I just thought about this now. When you were doing this, I went back and checked. Episode seven yep. of the BioBusters is titled "Musings on the Origins of Life," and in that episode, we discussed the Miller-Urey experiment, RNA world hypothesis, and that was with other... uh, Fisher, right? That was with, with the... T.J. Fisher. Yeah, we had a student actually. Uh, uh, he, he was interested in the subject, and uh, he was our guest. Well, shout out to T.J. Hopefully, he's still listening while he's. What is he doing his rounds right now or in the midst of his rotations Something or like rotations, yeah. I believe? Something yeah. Like okay. Cool. Uh, Keller, you've got some bright yellow dots on a reddish looking plate behind you. I do. Does anybody have an idea of what we're looking at back here? Bacteria? It is good. <laughs> so, so these are bacteria. This is an actual plate from some of our experiments in the lab. It's from a uh, a nasal swab from one of uh, probably me or one of our other faculty. This is called mannitol salt auger, and it's uh, it's got mannitol sugar in there. And the pink uh, is there's an acid indicator in the in the media, and you take your it's just like a COVID test. You know they got those long swabs, right? And they stick them way up your nose and tickle uh-huh. your brain. And we put it on this plate. And that's actually Staph aureus. It's fermenting the mannitol, which is a sugar. So it's fermenting that and causing an acid production, which causes the color change. From so this is how we screen people for the carriage of Staph in the nose. Perfect. Thank you for that explanation. Absolutely. I, I love these changing backgrounds. You should keep doing it. You told me to. You told me to. Boy, <laughs> that was set up. But, they, but they're informational. I, so, I like it. So much for that illusion. Great. I mean, I pulled. I found this one in five seconds. We we have a whole virtual lab that we put together for our students, where we have a a lot of images. Microbiology, interestingly enough, is very visual for right. being a small science. Right, 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 right. Lots of colors. That's right. More than fizz. And right and now. and and you know, literally, visual without without looking at things under a microscope, microbiology yeah. would not exist yeah. as a discipline. Yeah. 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 Perfect. So we've got a lot lined up in this episode. We actually have a interesting, exciting interview coming up with Dr. Ben Colbert. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Yeah. It should be fun. He's going to uh, talk to us about the amygdala and pain and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, pain receptors, detection of pain, bilateralization or lateralization, left, right side of the brain. But, but again, we can't ignore it. Coronavirus, as of today, <sighs> worldwide, roughly around 150 million cases with 3 million deaths. In the United States, we have slowed down significantly. I uh, Probably, well, not probably, uh, that vaccination effort is, is happening full steam right now. Mm-hmm. 32 million cases, roughly uh, 573,000 deaths. In terms of vaccine effort in the, in the U.S., at least one dose, we're looking at 43% of the population, fully vaccinated is looking like around 30% of the population. Which the that's glo- good. 
Yeah, I mean, it is. That's, that's a it good is. number to be at at this point in time. So about a month ago, we had uh, more arms than vaccines. And now we have more vaccines than arms to stick in. The uh, vaccine, between vaccine hesitancy, which we'll touch upon again today, mm-hmm. and sort of, I guess, uh, maybe people feeling a little bit complacent. Uh, but, but now we have uh, more vaccines than, than, than we have people wanting them. Now, real quick, I mean, look at the 43% to have at least one dose. I mean, that's what, a good... That's a good number. hundred and... Yeah. 860 least, million, probably 160, million, 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 yeah. So if, if there's about 300, uh, well, three, 330 million, yeah. uh, including children, though, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, you, you both would agree that the 32 million cases is probably low. That's just cases. That's not the the kids some, and the some, other people. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Some of those 32 million U.S. cases, I know some uh, people who have had corona vaccine are mm-hmm. also getting vaccinated. Well, sure, yeah. but I'm just saying there's got to be a lot of ACE. We were talking about 10%, which, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that can't be 10% or everybody's had it. But I guess my point is that's that's low. And yeah. so even with the 43% of the vaccinated public, add on that the cases and the asymptomatic cases that we're assuming, yes, but Right. With good reason. Yeah, I agree. You're getting close to 80 percent, I'm going to say. I'm how, how many how many asymptomatic cases you think are out if, there? If you're counting the, the at least one dose, not the fully vaccinated. Yeah, yes, I am. At least one dose. At least one dose. Yeah. At 43 percent, another 30 million. Maybe you get close to that. And then asymptomatic. 70, yeah. 70%. 70%. Let's say, I would say 70 We are to 75%. getting close. And I think that's why we're seeing a good reduction well, in, of course. In, in cases. Of course. The most important statistic I looked at uh, personally that I looked at l- this week is that the death rate in the senior population in the U.S., has dropped by more than 90%. Yeah, that's great. And that's fantastic news. Yes. They were the most vulnerable population, mm-hmm. et cetera, so on and so forth. Yeah. And that's fantastic news. So uh, global uh, vaccine rate is roughly around 1.08 billion doses given so far. The U.S. is leading that effort with uh, almost a quarter of, of so 250-some million doses in, in the U.S. alone. Great. Um an interesting COVID update, uh, J&J vaccine back in business, uh, now with a warning on the label. Uh, saying Which I mean, th- warning labels are pretty standard. standard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, watch a commercial about any drug. Exa- no. Oh, exactly. <laughs> now, does up that to, warning... Up to death your side in, some of those, in some of those side effects, yeah. Now, does that warning label say, no bullshit here, folks, the J&J vaccine <laughs> actually works? works. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I think I read that the, um, hopefully it says that because, you know, it's, it's more straightforward, but I doubt it say that. Uh, but uh, it's going to be in one of those like uh, forms that they give you, what, like mm-hmm. every time you go get a vaccine, they give you one of those forms, what consent forms or, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's going to be, it's going to be in there. But hey, that's good news because that's one and done and uh, you move on. Yep. Uh, other interesting coronavirus update. Also quickly is Pfizer is developing a protease inhibitor drug. Uh, They have initiated phase one studies for that uh, novel oral antiviral. It's intended to slow or halt virus replication. So it targets the main protease that the virus needs to cleave long proteins into smaller ones to then make viral particles. So by targeting the protease, you can 
pretty much inhibit viral replication. We we've had drugs like this for a long oh, time. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So for other for other viruses, for and other the, viruses, these enzymes, these proteases are very specific. So uh, HIV, we we've had protease inhibitors. That was one of the first mainstays of therapy, and still still are widely used. Right, right. Uh, the new hepatitis C drugs. Those are there's some protease inhibitors out yeah. there as well as yeah, yeah. Uh, nuclear uh, RNA polymerase inhibitors. So that's that's, that's cool. No, this is exciting because yeah. uh, then at the first sign of infection at the clinic or your doctor's office, you give someone a protease inhibitor, uh, send them home, and you know uh, they should feel great within a few days. Very cool. Okay, so uh, Fawner, do you want to introduce uh, sort of the quickly the topic of our interviewer, and then we'll segue our interview today, and then we'll segue into that. Sure. So this came about from a journal club uh, from, I believe, a few months ago. Some of our students came across a really cool paper that was recently just published this past January, and it had to do with the role of the amygdala in pain. And, and what's I the think, amygdala? So the amygdala is the part of the brain that is most often and has a very rich history in having a localization of emotion, right? Okay. That's what the amygdala does. And I believe that's what the students were really looking at is, okay, you know, looking at the amygdala, its roles in emotion, but also what other sensations or, you know, neurological processes is it involved in? And what this review article that the students read and that we are going to discuss with Dr. Ben Colber is, um, it's titled the left and right hemispheric lateralization of the amygdala in pain. And essentially what we're hoping to discuss is what are some of the nuclei that are really critical in the, in the amygdala and notable in terms of kind of processing pain? Uh, what is this lateralization effect? So which side of the amygdala or this nucleus in the amygdala, the left versus right uh, is more important or has a uh, bigger kind of role in pain processing and pain modulation and how can this be used potentially in future medical studies and potentially years down the line, can this be used as a type of therapeutic tool for future physicians? Perfect. So I've got Dr. Colbert in the waiting room. So I will Let's bring him in, bring him in, admit him and go from there. All right, guys. So now we are at that part of the episode where uh, we uh, interview a scientist. And uh, for this episode's uh, study of the week, I guess, or study of the episode, we have with us Dr. Ben Kolber, who is, uh, I guess, uh, familiar to Fawner. And I know some of the students had seen his paper and uh, liked it. So we'll uh, segue to Fawner and uh, have you take it from there. Yeah, thanks. Um, and it was, you know, always kind of fascinating. And uh, Ben, I can't remember when you started at Duquesne. Um, and well, let me just introduce you first off. So uh, Ben, you're currently at the University of Texas at Dallas. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And you're an associate professor still in neuroscience and, and you are part of the Center for Advanced Pain Studies. Is that yeah, correct? That's right. Yeah, you got it. Okay. And uh, yeah, we first linked up at Duquesne and um, you started in 2011 at Duquesne. Right. Yeah, yeah. I can't, re I can't believe I still remember that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, about 10 years ago. And Better memory than me. 
<laughs> it's starting to slip, trust me. And usually it starts slipping whenever my wife tells me to do something around the house and, you know, I just magically forget. I don't know how that works. But um, hopefully, thankfully she doesn't listen to the podcast and I won't get yelled at for that. Um, no. But yeah, uh, I was always fascinated and, you know, I loved my grad work, of course, and my grad work dealt with stress and susceptibility to stress, how that impacts infection and predation behavior in amphibians. But I mean, Ben's field was just so kind of widely applicable and just so interesting. And that's how some of our students came across it in the last few months is kind of that kind of multi-modality and the impact of pain in so many different ways, you know, physiologically, uh, in multiple systems through, uh, throughout the body. And then, you know, just this idea of pain. And I think some of the students were also discussing it in regards to the opioid um, uh, pain sure. epidemic. Yeah. But um, yeah, they came across the paper that we, um, well, how about we just transition to you, Ben? Uh, it's the 2020 paper on the amygdala and that kind of left and right lateralization in terms of pain. Yeah. Um, and I, I just found it fascinating in that kind of there is that lateralization, for, first of all. Um, can you can you speak more to that in terms of the role of that lateralization and the really special role of the central nucleus of the amygdala in in terms of you know that uh, difference in pain modality? Yeah, so I think the the central amygdala uh, is really at the forefront of us trying to understand this lateralization in pain. I think as we go further into this, we're going to find more and more brain areas have similar lateral, lateralization. I mean, when I was a, a neuroscience student, even as an undergrad and, and even getting my PhD in neuroscience, I always learned about lateralization just in terms of functional specialization of language and always in humans. Like that's how I learned it was that lateralization was this like uniquely human phenomenon and made us people. Um, but it turns out it's just blatantly false. <laughs> and basically all organisms that have like a bilateral nervous system, you know, two sides, a left and a right, basically show functional lateralization from you know, C. Uh, elegans, nematodes, to honeybees, to mice, rats, amphibians, uh, reptiles, birds. And there's some really, really fascinating, and uh, in, in when I first got into this, kind of surprising data out there. So there's, for instance, this phenomenon in, in some birds that when they're searching for food on the ground, so when they're walking around uh, on the ground, they'll uh, search or scan the sky for predators with their left eye, or sorry, excuse me, their right eye, uh, left hemisphere, and then they'll search for. Uh, sorry, I said that wrong. When they're when they're when they're scanning the sky for predators, they do left eye, right hemisphere, and they're looking at the ground for food with their right eye and left hemisphere. And this is like multiple different species do this, mm. and and it fits with this kind of like bigger, uh, broader generalization that the left hemisphere is kind of about you know uh, evaluation of the environment in terms of in this case, food, and then the right hemisphere is about like stress reactivity. Okay, that that, that reminds me of some of those like uh, crab species, right, where they have these yeah. like antenna-like eyes, and then they can rotate in every direction, and they're independent, and they can see here and there. And so, so yeah. do you think that might have? Uh, so, I, I read somewhere that bats they all when they leave their cave, they always fly to the right. Well, I've not heard that one, but it, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that that's, that's probably some sort of weird. Huh. 
Yeah, I always wondered. I read that somewhere, and I thought, yeah, who measured that? But no, always side of the right. So, Ben, in terms of like the organismal differences in the kind of lateralization, uh, are there kind of is it a conserved system across most species across most organisms, or are there different degrees of lateralization? Are there, you know, different like tracks involved in sending those pain sensations and pain awareness that are going to the, you know, amygdala, uh, I guess, just broadly, um, how do multiple species compare to kind of what is observed in humans, I guess? Yeah. So, so the, the best like cross species, uh, comparison that's been done for laterality is handedness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we'll get to pain in a second, but <laughs> laterality to me is just like mind growing. So I like to talk about it a lot. So, you know, handedness has been studied now in, in multiple species, a lot of non-human primates in mice, rats, dogs, um, uh, all sorts of different species. And there, it seems to be somewhat species specific and then also like kind of modality specific. So an animal that doesn't really do things with its individual limbs has very little evidence of laterality. But an animal that maybe has the ability to reach and, and you know firmly grasp something like some sort of non-human primate, you know, has the ability to develop specialization. And one of the cool things is that sometimes laterality doesn't there's not like population level laterality that like, you know, 90% of the species are right-handed, but what they find is that on an individual basis, there's laterality. And when an animal is more, let's say right-handed or more left-handed, they end up doing the task better than an ambidextrous individual, wow. um, which is kind of cool. And that leads to kind of one of the hypotheses about how specialization evolved is that it allowed for this sort of you know, amping up of the process. So you could do a task better, basically, if you were highly lateralized. In the context of pain, it's really just mice, rats, and humans that we've really studied. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we're, we're still kind of limited in terms of how different species and if that laterality exists in other species. I suspect it does, right? If it exists in mice and rats and people, it's going to exist yeah. across, you know, across species. I mean, that would have been interesting to especially investigate. I'm kind of thinking back to some of the behavior studies that I did at Duquesne, you know, with Sarah uh, in grad school and kind of thinking about, okay, in terms of that laterality, in terms of maybe just basic predator movement or predator defense and behavioral movements to avoid predators, is there kind of a potential study there? Uh, like, Like you, I mean, just reading up on this and just having discussed it and vaguely briefly taught this before that idea of lateralization is really interesting and just everything that it impacts. It's really great. There's a, this example in uh, this little marsupial called the striped faced dunnards. Um, These examples also exist in fish where the animals actually will have different response rates or speed of response to a predator approaching from one side versus the other, which seems kind of insane, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Um, uh, but 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 it exists, and you you have to imagine because there's probably some other part of their life where the opposite laterality you know improves fitness, right? So, or like in fish, you'll see this sort of uh, response in fish that are schooling fish, and so there there's maybe a preference to turn to the right with everybody else instead of having an equal response to the shark coming from the right and the left. Hmm. You know, these sort of things. So, crazy. That's stuff. really cool. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, so. N- 
in terms of the review, I guess yeah. what was the what was the general kind of consensus uh, in terms of the review of all of these studies that have focused on lateralization? If you could kind of summarize the major findings and results from just from the review and from all those studies, what kind of um, what did most of the studies find in that review? Yeah, so let me talk about it from uh, rats and mice first, and then from people because we see some interesting differences. So in rats and mice. Uh, there seems to be very little sex difference so between male and female mice and rats, which is interesting, and that's distinct from the humans, I think. Um, and typically what we find is that the right amygdala, the right side of the brain, is involved in increasing pain. Um, so if you activate it with like a drug or electrical stimulation or optical stimulation, you can basically cause pain in the absence of an injury or a pain-like response in an animal. And then the left amygdala in most studies does nothing. A few studies increases pain and a few studies decreases pain. Um, my work in my lab is, we typically find that the left amygdala decreases pain in the context of visceral pain. So we study bladder pain. Um, and there's kind of an interesting difference there between bladder pain and visceral pain and like, you know, what we call somatic pain. Like you get a cut on your arm or yeah. something like that. I guess that was gonna be a follow-up question I had that kind of where it is sensed or where you're getting that detection of pain left versus right. And you said the left, you're not really seeing a lot of studies didn't find, you know, that association with pain. Does it depend on the stimulus or, you know, the specific type of pain, like visceral pain, parietal pain, different types of pain like that? Yeah, I think it does. So I think that, uh, you know, visceral pain seems to be kind of right, more right amygdala mm -hmm. activating, uh, Somatic pain, like a cut or a localized inflammation in a hind limb, would be kind of right. But when we get to neuropathic pain, where you're actually injuring a nerve, mm -hmm. and kind of left or right side, it gets a little bit more messy, um, mm -hmm. and, and the the data are not as clean, and they change over time after the injury, and which makes sense, right? Like if you have a long term injury, you would expect some sort of like plasticity that would occur, yeah, you know, across time. Wow, uh, and I guess just to follow up there. In terms of like plasticity, you know, where would you see the kind of most degree of plasticity depending on the either the type of pain or kind of maybe what tracks or what areas would exhibit the highest degree of plasticity in regards to pain? Are, are those results out there? Are the studies available? I guess, what, what do you know about that? Yeah, so it's there's a lot of different areas in the brainstem and brain that are activated uh, in the context of pain and are involved in we say descending modulation of pain. So mm -hmm. for instance, where opioids Usually. <laughs> have the biggest impact in terms of reducing pain is in the brain stem and it's kind of descending modulation uh, area. Yeah, so one of the kind of unique things about pain compared to other senses is that uh, once the information gets to the brain or in the brain stem, there's actually multiple pathways to get into the brain. Um, and through that, you get different components of the pain. Because if you think about pain, it's something that, you know, obviously it has a sensory component to it. It has like a localization component, okay, my, my left arm hurts or my right foot hurts or whatever it is. But also there's this emotional component, yep. right? You feel sad when you're injured. Mm -hmm. There's a learning component, right? We don't touch hot stoves more than once. We learn it when we're young. And <laughs> I hope not. I really hope not. <laughs> and, and you learn, right? I mean, it's, it's an, yeah. really important to be able to engage your learning circuits during pain. And so when you talk about neuroplasticity, I think it's going to depend on, uh, you know, that stimulus and, and 
what, what's driving? Is it driving more of the emotional circuits or the sensory discriminative circuits, the learning and memory circuits, the you know cognitive uh, circuits? Uh, it's, yeah, it just is going to depend, I think. But basically, they're all activated through different incoming pathways. Very cool. Um, what do you think some of the therapeutic implications are to the kind of consensus, the uh, overall results of the review? I guess, you know, for our listeners and for people who are listening who I guess don't know, you know, all of the tracks and all the specific nuclei and brain areas, what does this, what do these results and these differential results between the left and right sides kind of mean from a therapeutic implication for medicine? Yeah, good question. So uh, to, to first answer that, let me just kind of summarize the human data, which I think shows that uh, in if you take a healthy person, right, and you give them a painful stimulus, mm -hmm. you know, you burn their arm, doesn't matter left or right arm, you're going to see typically greater right side activation. But if you have chronic pain, uh, and this is like, you know, again, I'm generalizing across studies, there's obviously a lot of exceptions, but in chronic pain, it seems to be reversed. It's kind of left amygdala or left left side of the brain and left amygdala there we study. So in terms of therapeutic implications, it's going to depend on whether you're looking at acute pain, so an acute injury you just had, or that you've had chronic low back pain for three years, right? And, and that sort of implication. I mean, one of the challenges that I have as a neuroscientist in the studies we do is that it's really hard to specifically target something with a drug in, in one part of the brain. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the receptors we study are expressed all over, all over the brain, um, where they can have opposite effects um, mm -hmm. in different areas. So, so it's always a challenge. There are obviously for things like Parkinson's deep brain stimulation, and you could imagine potentially bringing in something like deep brain stimulation for pain, mm -hmm. where you could activate one side of the brain or the other, you know, a certain area. If someone had like chronic pain where they were, you know, functioning out of a, at a 10 on a zero to 10 scale every day, you could imagine a really invasive study, but otherwise it's hard to kind of like actually imagine it from a therapeutic perspective. Now, with that said, there, there are some people that have been looking at, you know, in a prospective manner, kind of when a, a patient comes into the clinic with their first bout of pain, they'll do a scan of their brain, right? And then what they'll do is they'll follow those people over the next two years, and some of them will heal, right? Yeah. That first bout of pain, you know, lasts for a month. Other people don't, right? So they become chronic pain sufferers, and mm -hmm. so, you know, the human imaging world is really interested in what changes uh, occur. And then is there anything that's predictive about yeah. the initial uh, scans? And there's been a few studies that show that there are some areas that are predictive of, uh, you know, the potential that you'll develop chronic pain. And so that's what there, I, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought too, just based on kind of what the review was focusing on. And when you brought that up, I was thinking, you know, imaging and kind of potential diagnostic and predictive markers based on the original imaging for chronic pain sufferers might be one avenue. Yeah. And one of the, you know, so if you knew, for instance, that some part of the brain was activated or, or you know, enlarged when you first walked in the clinic, what that could mean is more intensive treatment mm -hmm. acutely. Right, that might be a situation in which, let's say, an acute opioid might be actually advantageous, yep. right? Because there, there are pretty good data that if uh, the stronger you treat the acute pain, the better the outcome is for you know minimizing chronic pain. I'm not necessarily advocating for opioids, but in terms of intensive treatment acutely, if you know that oh, there's a 60% chance this person is going to develop chronic illness, like let's hit it hard right now. 
Um, I think there's, for some pain disorders, there's good evidence for that now. I th- and I think you bring up a good point and something that, you know, we can use as kind of a bow on top on this is, especially for prospective medical students, the, the opioid abuse and what we're seeing there over the last few years, few decades now, you know, it's about the use of it. It's about if, can you strategize it? Can you use it acutely? Can you use it in the most optimal way? And maybe in conjunction with what you said, based on imaging results and possible dysfunctions and being able to use those opioids more responsibly and acutely, that could be the best use for them. And obviously not having them used chronically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been using opioids for thousands of years and we're not going to stop. They're great for, uh, you know, trauma, right? They're fabulous yeah. for, for dealing with acute trauma and severe pain. But yeah, we got to be more responsibly, absolutely. There's actually some, a little bit of opioid data in the amygdala with lateralization mm-hmm. um, with a, a type of opioid called a kappa opioid. Um, so there's the most opioids, morphine and oxycontin bind to the mu opioid receptor. But the capillary receptor is, is a little bit less studied and, and doesn't bind as strongly to those drugs. And when you activate it, it primarily causes something called dysphoria um, and causes basically stress. So back in the early 2000s, people used to smoke uh, salvia, um, which was a plant. And it, would, it's a, it has a lot, a high concentration of a compound that binds to the capillary receptor. And it basically caused people to hallucinate for a brief, very brief period of time. Um, and so that's one of the kind of hallmarks of activation of kappa. But it turns out that uh, kappa seems to be uh, kind of upregulated and driving some of the depression changes that happen after pain. So, okay. you know, again, you, you get injured and you feel sad about that. And for, for patients, if we can deal with the sadness portion, we can actually help their life out a lot. Oh, yeah. Mitigate so, that quality of life, the quality of life effects that come after, you know, severe traumatic pain experience or even chronic pain. Yeah, that's a... That's a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right? Pain, pain impacts people's ability to sleep and eat and go to work and mm-hmm. all these things. And if you can help each of those individual components, even if you don't actually change the pain itself, you know, that can be a win. So it turns out that the kappa is kind of upregulated uh, after pain in the right side only. Well, I should say it's actually upregulated in both the left and right side. But when you manipulate it, you can only you only see changes on the right side. Um, so when you manipulate on the right side, you can see a decrease in kind of stress-associated pain uh, effects. But when you manipulate on the left side, it doesn't do anything, which is also bizarre that it's expressed. Right? Yeah, that's like, really weird. Nature doesn't waste energy, right? It's, it's yeah. something's happened on the left side. We just don't know what it is. Hmm. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Uh, it sounds like a lot of kind of potential, high degree potential for, you know, future work. And that's something that I always liked about, you know, your lab. And it seems like everything you've been doing, you know, in the recent years is there's no shortage of possible avenues of future research to do in the pain field. There's always going to be work to be done. And uh, yeah, this, like I said, like we said, our students love this paper and hopefully if they're listening, they get a lot out of kind of these additional and cool details that you've added in. Cool. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, do you guys, Delbert, Chris, have any other questions? Uh, I just wanted. To, what was the name of that plan again, Ben? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just hey, kidding. Uh, real quick, if you want to find out if your left or right brains with regards to language, mm-hmm. there's actually an app that will tell you that. 
there's, okay. there's an app for everything there's nowadays. An app for everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what, what is the app? We'll put it in the uh, show notes. Whatever. Well, it's called iDichotic. So I'll, I'll send Chris the link to it. Okay, perfect. iDichotic. You basically put headphones in and it, it plays different sounds and you have to oh, wow. respond what you hear and basically you figure out if you're left or right brain. Most people are left brain with, with regards to domination, but some people are not. So. Wow. Oh, that would be cool. Maybe we'll yeah. make an Instagram yeah. post about it too. I yeah. think the Instagram post is the way to go. Yeah, that's perfect. That'd be great. No, yeah, thanks for the I think tip. We should, we should all three of us try it out. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, just do an episode on that. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, that would be fun. I don't, that, if that's a whole episode, we're taking way too long. <laughs> that, would be, that would be entertaining and fun for our listeners, I bet. 45 minutes of that. <laughs> so uh, just just a, a, a question to maybe uh, try try to wrap us up a bit here. Uh, it, it, what What do you think is like kind of like what the, the next frontier in like pain research like what, what what do you think sort of like is like if if you had like if we were the nih and we gave you unlimited funds you know oh, like yeah. what, what <laughs> please, please, please. <laughs> you can have as many r1s <laughs> as you want like what's 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 sort of like the what do you think sort of is like is the next breakthrough in like pain research yeah so I, I think the, the biggest thing and the biggest challenge we've had is translating our results from in vitro studies and animal studies to people. And, uh, you know, as is true for most of science, it's yeah. not ethical to do most of the studies we want to do on people, right? But what people are trying to, or starting to figure out is that there are other ways to get at human tissue. So one of the really cool innovations, which when you hear about it, you're like, uh, duh. Um, that people have been doing is actually gathering uh, what we call DRG or dorsal root ganglion. These are the sensory sensory neurons um, that you detect pain with from organ donors. You know, so someone will donate okay. their body after a car accident or, or illness. You know, surgeons will come in there and take all the valuable organs. But most, you know, the nervous system is not valuable to any sort of um, transplant. And so it's just, you know, cremated or, or buried. And so uh, you can get these dorsal root ganglion, uh, you know, chunks of, of, of neurons. They're, they're about the size of a rice uh, kernel, and they have, you know, I don't know what the number is, thousands of, of neurons in them. And you can plate them in a ditch, and you can record from them. And what people are realizing is that the, the biology that we understand from the mouse and rat is not exactly the same as the human. There's a lot of similarity, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I mean, pain is pretty strongly conserved across species. We all have to avoid dying. Okay. Mm. But, um, but th- there's, there's clear differences, you know, a mouse and a rat, like they run around on the ground all day. We're sitting yeah. up here, you know, you know, for me, six feet off the ground, like I'm, I'm experiencing the world in a much different way. And so what people are doing is basically using human tissue like that or, or brain tissue from, uh, from organ donors, um, using stem cells to actually start to, you know, test new drugs in human cells, right? Rather than spending years and years and years screening, you know, chemical libraries from a pharmaceutical company in a, a mouse cell or in vitro assay, instead you can screen it in a human right. cell, right? right? And so you know right away, like that's happening. So that's that's a big just, you know, uh, innovation that's kind of really pushing us to, to really think more about the translation. So um, now we still have to find the targets. And I think the human tissue is not, prevalent enough to find the targets, but mm-hmm. in terms of 
screening and understanding at least some of the biology, I think it's, it's really one of the, the big innovations out there. That's fantastic. Well, uh, we want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was a great conversation. Yeah, it was great to catch up too, Ben. And uh, it sounds like it sounds like personally we've only scratched. I know I'm talking in the presence of two other microbiologists and immunologists, but everybody can appreciate the science of this. And uh, I think we've only scratched the surface in terms of this lateralization effect. And I mean, hopefully with your schedule and when we can find free time again, you know, sometime in the next few months or in future episodes, we'd like to have you back on and, oh, you know, absolutely. Yeah, maybe we can touch have base a- again. Or we could have an entire episode where the theme is not just uh, one paper. It could be on a specific uh, topic related to pain or neuroscience. I agree. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. Cool. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really enjoyed Absolutely. This. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, we will send you. Uh, we'll send you a link with the episode once okay. once we've got it uh, all cool. edited and ready to go. So we also do some uh, drug discovery stuff in the ocean. Um, from marine cyanobacteria. So maybe that would interest the microbiologists a little bit. More. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Now, yeah, yes, now yes. you're speaking our language. Delbert's yeah, <laughs> about to do a backflip. That's wow. right. We'll come back with an, an, a full episode on that. I, I perked <laughs> up when we got to see aliens. And then, you know, I was like, ah. Yeah, yeah we, do, we do collection trips down in Puerto Rico, Panama, Curacao. Oh now now oh now we need to collaborate. I see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say if, if you're looking for a research assistant and that's a right. Trip, I, I, a trip I, I, down you know there. I'm I'm scuba certified. You know. Oh, we, yes. Good. Absolutely. We, we we could set this up. I like this. It's hard work, and I'm definitely using air quotes right now. That's what I, <laughs> I can sense the future collaborations forming just right now. Perfect. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, thank you again, and. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll, uh, we'll we'll send you links once once we've got uh, uh, episodes, and we will hopefully see you on another episode. Yeah, cool. That's great, guys. Love to love to do it. Glad you guys are doing this. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and thank, thank you, you for being on here. We'll, yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, we'll give you the links to share and uh, have you back on soon. For sure. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot, Ben. Bye. Absolutely. Take care. You too. Bye. You too. Wow, that was a good discussion, wasn't it? That was really great. It was uh, not painful. That's a good one. I like did that. You, one. Did you have You're that? You're welcome. Did you have that as soon as you read the title of the article? Ooh, pain. <laughs> I, I got five of these. I got, <laughs> yeah, he, was, yeah. he was ready with this one. That was really good. I like that. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, uh, I, I, like, I liked what we discussed, and uh, I, I think there's potential of uh, bringing back for uh, more topics, right? You just uh, want to go to Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if we can collaborate and I can dive the Caribbean at the same time, why not? You know, the, the, the Central America and the Caribbean. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it struck me, you know, he's right. The, 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 opiates aren't going anywhere you know mm-hmm. I, I, the problem is that we've made them more powerful and so yes. they become more lethal yeah you know when, and, he, and, when he said that i mean I, i've known it, about opioids in history forever sure. like you read about it but sherlock what, holmes right uh-huh. but, but, but yeah, when you sort of state it make it like as a state oh hey by the way we've had a, we've been using them for thousands of years you're like yeah i guess i didn't think about that yeah yeah but but we've we've increased the potency to make them more lethal i mean you had to take a lot of opium 
Yeah. Well, right. and, and you know, we've even gone wars the, over opium. I mean, look sure. at the, you know, the stuff that happened with the Chinese and the British. And, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, that's one reason I, I like working at an osteopathic school. You, you know, you can say what you want about the research behind OMM, but it's clear that that for pain management, the, there are known, well-documented techniques oh, that can yeah, work. Yeah, and, yeah, and anything you can do besides start taking a a compound that you could become addicted to and could ruin your life, let alone kill you. I, I think every tool in the yeah. toolbox is here. I agree. I agree. And, you know, osteopathic is really a regular medical. It's allopathic plus well, yeah. more courses. It's just another know. tool that our students right. can use. Right. And, and, and I know about the net. It doesn't, replace, it doesn't replace regular medical school. It's just no. in addition to. No, yeah, yeah. Not at all. The one thing that Dr. Colbert brought up that I really liked was the fact that those opioid receptors are everywhere. They are, you know, widespread, you know, throughout. And I mean, no wonder that it has uh, a direct association with feelings, with emotion. But if there are receptors there in the amygdala, thinking about opioid addiction, boy, that's just another kind of nasty side effect where, uh, you know, making you feel really happy, but then if you're not stimulating that receptor, you feel really sad and you need it. I mean, it's a nasty, vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's uh, uh, let's keep going with our episode here. So we had a couple couple questions from one of our listeners regarding vaccine hesitancy, and we had talked about that last episode, and we wanted to wrap up that discussion. So for those of you listening, there's more about vaccine hesitancy in our previous episode, but we just wanted to wrap it up, answer a couple questions. So uh, Foner, you had looked up some data to answer the question regarding vaccine hesitancy by race. Historically, uh, African-Americans in the U.S. have been sort of uh, hesitant or weary to uh, get vaccines or uh, maybe uh, uh, medical care uh, because of some of our honestly uh, ugly history with medical care and, and African-Americans, right? Yes. Uh, Tuskegee comes to mind, uh, yep. uh, some experimentation on African-Americans in lack of providing the, you know, best, you know, a cure for some of the things, right? So uh, what, but it feels a little bit different with, with, with this, right? What did you find? So this was a, I believe this was a poll that was just published. The results were published uh, just last month at the end of March. Um, and among those individuals who responded to the survey, 73% uh, of black people and 70% of white people said that they either plan to get a coronavirus vaccine or that they had done so already, which means 25% of black respondents and 28% of white respondents said that they did not plan to get a shot. So effectively comparing 25% to 28%, um, it's a pretty minimal difference there, yeah, yeah. right? And um, I, I know a lot of famous uh, black people in the U.S. have been sort of at going out there doing outreach campaign. I, yes. I know Obama has, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he's very popular with the African-American. Uh, I could uh, I could swear I just saw something. Was it a commercial that I saw? Kamala either? Harris. Well, there is yeah. a commercial with all previous presidents sort of, well, all minus one, I guess, all sort of coming together and like saying, hey, uh, because they all recorded that like commercial together to like encourage Americans to get vaccinated, right? I think the commercial I was talking about, I, I saw that one, but the other one was maybe uh, Spike Lee was in it. And it was- There's a video of him with LeBron James, I think as well. But LeBron James is in so, some, some hot water th this week. But. So um, <laughs> among 
That's with a that commercial story. in mind. With that commercial in mind, I believe it is Spike Lee who was talking about Uber and about donating Uber rides mm. yeah, to like yeah, get yeah. people okay, yeah, to that. go get vaccinated. And I thought just, you know, these companies and everybody trying to work together to increase and fight back against vaccine hesitancy. You so can't the- use that as an excuse Oh, I yeah. don't have access, right? We're trying to get more resources. I was well, the federal access. government now with the Biden sort of COVID plan, whatever, they're saying that if if one if you are a corporation or a company or whatever, and one of your employees wants a day off to go get a vaccine, they will pay you. The government will pay you to to have that person leave work for one day to go get a vaccine. And if that's what we need to do, and that's what we need to do. I, I was reading the paper, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that uh, at Lecom, we've had some people go to houses with vaccines. So that's great. Yeah. Already. Now, I, I can't be feasible with everybody, but the more shots, more arms, you know, get the people to, to, to that can come to to a central location to do that. And then you can, yeah. you know, target those other people later to get there vaccines yep so the biggest hesitancy group they're seeing is is the age group of like 16 or 34 those have the highest like oh well i'm healthy i don't need it come on you remember when you were that age aren't you still 34 (laughs) i mean (laughs) like you were invisible i told you about my rabies story you're like i don't care i'm not gonna die it's these things i'm healthy right but but speaking of that population, so one thing that West, I, I read this yesterday, one thing that West Virginia is doing, uh, if you are in that age group and you go get a vaccine, they're going to give you a $100 bond certificate. What? Yeah, they're going to give you a hundred dollar bond. They made it a hundred bucks. Maybe, maybe that would, uh, maybe that would get actual cash. You mean instead of a bond? Sure. I like that. (laughs) So speaking of vaccine hesitancy, one of the things that we said we were going to talk to with our listeners is let's say you're a doctor and someone comes in and they're vaccine hesitant. Actually, you know, I had a situation like that. Uh, last week, I, I met someone who said, I'm not getting the vaccine. And I think one of the things that we ought to do as uh, uh, caregivers or scientists or whatever physicians is try to get to their level and understand why rather than dismiss it outright as sort of quackery or whatever. So w- w- what you should be doing, I think, as, a, as a, either a physician or a scientist or whatever, is first of all, find out why they're hesitant. This person I spoke to, uh, the, the, reason, the reason she was hesitant with the vaccine is that uh, she thought it went too fast and it skipped regulatory process. And, and I, I spent a good 10 minutes explaining all the regulatory processes that it did go through, uh, why it, it, it felt like it went faster because we were producing the vaccine earlier with government money, banking on like, oh, if if the data is great, the vaccine will be ready, it's good to go. If not, then we'll have to throw it all out, right? So it turns out that was not the case, right? So there were a lot of steps and, you know, things that we, we, we took out of the way to make it easier to get to here. And the whole thing of like, oh, you know, it went too fast. People have been working on SARS vaccines for 20 years. This, this is, it just happened to be that we had, a, we had a pandemic, we threw a ton of money at it, we, every scientist in the world was working on this, 
and they were able to benefit from 20 years of data. This is not oh, something that happened in one year, right? There, there's never going to be a vaccine unless this happened. Like, uh, the research money exactly. after, after the original stars and then the MERS, and then unless there was another outbreak, they weren't getting another bump in funding to, to push this forward. And not only did they get a bump, they got a mandate. And, you know, the president at the time told everybody, this is our problem. This is what we're doing. Yeah. And so you get every, all the smart people working on one project. It's going to get pushed through. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. we talked about it a little bit before the red tape was cut. Absolutely. So you have smart people all towards one goal. A lot of the work was already done. I mean, these are all really good points, Delbert. They just needed that extra step with their research. Honestly, they, they had done most of the work. They, the money. Yeah, the, of course. I mean, it, it's, it's going to turn out that this, this has cost us trillions to develop. Um, but it would have been but a, a normal vaccine does anyway. It's not like we're going to have a breakthrough be like, it's just what is the problem we want to solve now? Yeah. I think that's yeah. what you see is now if, if there's enough money thrown in a problem, we will fix it. Yeah. yeah. HIV, very good therapy now. I get not it. a cure, but a very good therapy. Mm-hmm. But with and more money, more promising lots therapies. More yeah. 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 The other thing with, with doctors or if you're a, you know, a healthcare provider, et cetera, counter misinformation, right? You know, yes. uh, don't, don't let it just sit there. Counter misinformation, be respectful in a very clear way. Be effectively the information expert source, right? Advise your patients to get vaccinated and, and, uh, and pretty much, you know, uh, address any fears. I, I find that people that are afraid of, of or are hesitant because of, of vaccines are often just either misinformed or not informed enough, right? They, they, they maybe don't have the full picture. And, and part of our job is, is to provide that, you know, at, at their level, you know, at their, uh, 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 is simplify down all the jargon and, and address the fears. And I found that if you address the fears and counter with scientific arguments, in fact, most, most people listen. There are, of course, the percent of people who will never, ever listen to what you have to say because but we, we talked about this. We talked about this a few years ago, I, I seem to recall, maybe two years ago. And it was when that documentary came out on Netflix to, about uh, Flat Earth and Flat Earthers. Remember <laughs> that, if we've yeah. all seen that? Yeah. And, and again, th- this is part of my point. Some of, I mean, some of their theories, if, so, some of their claims were out there. Uh And we're very Uh much either pseudoscience or science waved bye-bye a long time ago. And maybe they saw it in a meme and that's informing their opinion. But I seem to remember at the end of that documentary, the last 10 or 15 minutes, they said part of the problem with lack of science acceptance nowadays is you have two groups at such far ends of the spectrum. You have maybe people who have bad information or just simply aren't educated in that matter. And then you have the people at the far end who are the supreme experts in that. And the key is how do you get them to come together so that this group, the experts can better inform the people who are supplying the misinformation who might be misinformed or just don't have the education available to understand that you know what i mean and uh, and that's and that's that's originally why we started this podcast in 2018 mm-hmm. the the objective was let's take the science to the masses yeah right? and it's it's just a case of like you said you have to do it professionally 
you have to do it in a way where you're not talking down to a person because if if you're trying to tell somebody, hey, this is why the earth isn't flat and you start laying jokes in there or kind of, they get the sense that you're condescending or patronizing them. I mean, again, you saw some of the people in that documentary. They're probably not going to take that the, the, the best way. They're yeah, going to yeah. get immediately defensive. That is it. That, and that, I feel that, like that documentary was funny because there's this one guy right at the end where every experiment he's planned to prove the earth is flat just just doesn't work and shows the earth is round right and in the face of all of that he's like ah, I just haven't perfected the experiment yet right <laughs> he just keeps at it every single experiment he plans shows the earth is round right and he's like no no it's 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 flat the earth is flat and I gotta prove it right <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, Keller, have you seen that documentary? I haven't, I, but I might have to now. Yeah, you got to look it up, man. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It's well worth looking into, for sure. Uh, okay, so uh, anything else on vaccine hesitancy? No, God, please no. <laughs> All right, uh, so to wrap it up, yeah, go get a vaccine for not That's only right. the sake of yourself, but for the sake of, the let's say, humanity as a whole. Do your patriotic duty. There you go. And go get vaccinated. Honestly, that's what it is. So we're going to move on to the game segment. In addition to our previous guest, we have other guests today coming in to, uh, at the end of the episode, to tell you how to email us. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Keller, take it away. Sure. So uh, on to our game segment, for those of you who have, uh, have seen the podcast before, uh, or listened, you know that we have uh, at the end of each episode a, a medical scenario, usually uh, with some sort of pathogen, and, and uh, we just and there's gifts. gifts. So, so we ask that uh, if you if you are listening all the way to this point, that you uh, take a guess and email your your guess to the questions to uh, the biobusters at gmail dot com. And you will be entered, if you answer correctly, will be entered to win some bling, as Delbert just showed you. We got merch. If you are watching, uh, uh, you can win this guy. There it which is. is. And if you're listening, it's a BioBusters mic. <laughs> you have to guess what it is. So uh, let's do a quick recap of last episode's riddle. We had a, a Japanese immigrant in 2010 who was seen in a German hospital for evaluation of a cherry-sized lump near her belly button. Uh, the subcutaneous lump was painless and non-itching and had developed over a six-month period without any migration. No other skin lesions were present. She had just finished radiotherapy for invasive ductal breast cancer the month prior. The patient immigrated to Germany 42 years prior from Japan and does regularly visit family back in Japan. Upon surgical excision of the lump, there were helminthic structures typical of cestodes, which are tapeworms. The exact species was determined by PCR, so the question was, what, uh, what is it, and how did she likely acquire it? This, uh, this is not a common pathogen. I don't cover this in our parasitology course anywhere. I guess we could add it for fun, but that's oh, yeah. just another thing to learn. Yeah. Right. But this so, one, go ahead. Uh, okay, no, no, go ahead. I was just gonna start reading emails, but no, go ahead. 
No, go ahead. Do that. Then we'll... Are you sure? Sure. Because I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> so uh, we heard from a couple of you. Uh, Rick writes, uh, I'm uh, hoping that I found the article for the bug this week. The uh, case description in PubMed was a pretty cast to colors. And uh, I yeah. think it's Spidermetra caught by eating raw animals, uh, which is a local culture. In particular, the article mentions frog and snake, snake meat. meat. Mm, Yum, yuck. followed by yuck. Yeah. Mm. But which species no, is you. it, Delbert? Uh, which species of Spidermetra? Yes, sir. <laughs> it's, it's a mouthful. I skipped that on purpose. <laughs> I know. It's, I, I looked it up. Hold on. It's, it's Aranaceae europei. Okay, perfect. Perfect. You're welcome. Gonna... I was you know you don't have to do it. Little, it. I was going to pronounce it a little bit differently than that. <laughs> I'm glad you did it. <laughs> uh, Rick You're also welcome. asked about um, uh, if the clots that occurred with the Johnson & Johnson vac- vaccine uh, in those uh, younger women, uh, it, it, whether there were underlying factors. And uh, we kind of mentioned that uh, a little bit in our last episode that w- we simply don't know. We just haven't seen the data. But it, it could very well be. They could have been smokers on birth control, autoimmune disorders, et cetera. Okay. Uh, Beverly writes, hi, BioBusters. I think the patient has a spyometria tapeworm infection acquired from eating an undercooked animal such as a frog. frog. I enjoy cases like this that are quick. Thanks for sharing. Cheers, Bev. Bev, thank you for sharing. Uh, that means a lot. And, uh, our winner happens to be Bev. So Beverly Kozuch. Kozik. 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 The famous. Kozik. The famous the Beverly Famous Kozik. and uh, ah. hopefully in the next few months. Good luck to Bev on studying she's, for uh, her boards. Yeah, okay. she's a PCOM student. She was an undergrad at Teal years oh, ago. Oh, how nice. Yeah. Reaching out. Absolutely. And uh, we got an email from uh, Mary, uh, and we addressed her uh, questions yeah. earlier. She asked uh, about vaccine hesitancy. So, yeah, keep, uh, keep writing us uh, with those emails, with those questions. We will definitely uh, talk about them in the next episode. So, uh, cool. of course, just to, to finish up the case, it was Spyometra. It, it is a, uh, it's, it's usually a parasite between snakes and frogs. So the snake eats the frog, right, and then... Uh, and, and then the frog picks it up from, I guess, the environment. People can get it when you ingest raw, raw frog or snake meat. And in this case, the patient uh, d- decided they did not, she did not want to receive anti-helminthic therapy. Oh. And uh, no, she, she did not receive any. They just surgically removed it. Okay. And then one uh, at a one-year follow-up, she nothing. She was un- uneventful. So perfect. Uh, no long-term therapy. All right, and now for this episode's riddle, it's another short one. Before I forget, though, uh, I'm sorry, oh, Bev, uh, email the show, thebiobusters yeah. at gmail.com, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll figure out how to get a gift to you. Very nice. All right, in the summer of 2012, a graduate student at the University of South Georgia was hospitalized first in Augusta and then transferred to Vanderbilt for treatment of a series of wound infections after receiving a deep gash on her leg during a zip line accident. Homemade zip line. Not a good idea. No. Wow. Uh, homemade zip line. Was well, that it, a thing? It, yeah. And it required about 20 staples to close. Ooh. So picture that gash. The wound became infected with a, a ubiquitous bacteria that 
that typically does not affect immunocompetent people. And so this episode's questions are, what bacterium did she become infected with? And how exactly did her wound become contaminated with the pathogen? And if you know the answer to this riddle, email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And our our guest speakers will uh, also contribute now. Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) we'll bring them in and they will tell you where to email us. Email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And, uh, well, that that uh, should do it. do it. Anything else for today, guys? No, I think I that's think a lot. So. Yeah. We did, I think we covered a lot That was a, a good episode. Today. Yeah, we had a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Really, a really interesting, you know, discussion. So it'd be yeah. nice, you know, to get some more students on here as well. Maybe talk about their research. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Good idea. No, that's a good idea. All right. Well, that's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, any podcast catcher on your device. Uh, You can uh, listen to us on iHeartRadio. You can now also find us on the Instagram, the Biobusters podcast. Uh, All those links are in the show notes. If you do not want to listen and want to watch, you can also watch us on YouTube. Everything is in the show notes. All right. Uh, Thank you for listening. And uh, many thanks to our sponsors for the brand and and music. And our guest today. Thank you to Ben Colbert for joining us. And yeah. All right. Thank you. See you guys. See you. Bye.